You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Klaus Nomi was an operatic singer, performance artist, and pastry chef. He was perhaps the most unusual of triple threats in the art world, but he was absolutely beautiful as a human being and as a performer. One of the reasons that I picked the Nomi song and one of the things I like about the Nomi song is throughout the song, he's asking, would they know me? He's literally asking to be seen. He is seeking acceptance and seeking connection throughout the song. He is looking for validation for who he is. And as strange as he might seem on first glance, he's tapping into something that I think all of us can agree is a universal feeling and a universal need that we all have to be seen and accepted and feel connected with others. Feel like who art ed? Who art is? Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood. And for this week's episode, which is happening to land on Valentine's Day, I thought it'd be the perfect time to drag my wife, Amanda, from Prairie Elementary to come join me for this episode of the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Hello. Thank you for having me from upstairs. Yes, I am quite literally dragging you down into my bunker studio today, but you are the perfect guest to be talking about one of the most sort of delightfully absurd artists of the 1970s and 80s. And I know you are somebody who has a soft spot for slightly odd human beings. I am quite strong evidence of your peculiar soft spot for odd human beings. Today, we're talking about Klaus Nomi. So Klaus Nomi was actually Klaus Sperber at birth. Um, He was born January 24th, 1944 in Immenstad, Bavaria in Germany. So in the 1960s, he worked as an usher at the Deutsche Oper. It's a German opera company in West Berlin. And I guess during this time, he would sing for the other staff after performances. Um, When the show was done, he would stand out in front of the fire curtain and he, you know, people just loved his voice. One thing I didn't know was that big theater, like the fire curtain. I had never even heard of that term before. You know, I just always thought like curtain goes up and down for the open, close the show. But I guess big theaters have to have a giant heavy curtain to protect the audience in the event of a fire. And ironically, these safety curtains used to be made from asbestos. So they would protect people from an immediate danger of fire by exposing them to the long-term danger of mesothelioma. Um, But in his spare time, he would be singing, like I said, at that opera house because he was a classically trained opera singer as well as at the local um, the local clubs. Yes. In 1972, at age 28, he left his home. He left not only like his home, he left his country. He came to America, came to New York specifically, and he was performing 
uh, from an, from those early days, he was starting off doing some work off Broadway, and he also worked as a pastry chef. Yeah, he um, he used to um, pay people when he became a little more famous. He used to pay people not with money but with his pastries. And if you look on YouTube, you'll find old video footage of him on a New York public access show called TV Party. And he's delightful because he is showing off his um, various pastries, which by all accounts were actually like really good. So yeah, he he baked. Yeah, and appearing on TV Party, I feel like this is not the first time TV Party has been referenced on this show. Uh, I can't remember if it was Basquiat or Keith Haring where I was talking about TV Party, but the New York public access scene was not like like cable access in a lot of other cities and suburbs and stuff around the United States. Like it had a pretty substantial audience and big name artists would actually show up on those shows. Um, On the topic of Keith Haring and Basquiat, they were in Klaus Nomi's social circle and even appeared on stage with him at a couple of turns. So, He's in New York, and like I said, he kind of became a fixture on the art scene in the East Village. He started to gain attention for his music, I would say probably after this breakthrough performance. In 1978, he was a part of the New Wave vaudeville. And for listeners unfamiliar with New Wave, I I think we kind of have to explain a little bit about this. And I know you are quite the New Wave (laughs) expert relative to me would you care to explain just a little bit about like what what was new wave well i mean you could you could go in the traditional sense a lot of people think like flock of seagulls like or you know something along those lines but it's it's a pretty broad label um so like the scene that he was part of you would have all sorts of different and strange acts. You would have, you know, punk music, you would have uh, people playing rockabilly, you would have poets, you would have folk music. It it was a broad label that was kind of put on in the beginning. So I guess that's how you would classify what he started off as. Um, but when he came out during that vaudeville act, no one had seen really anything like it. Um, and it was pretty amazing. Yeah. And I think like towards the end of the new wave era, Like you said, we think of Flock of Seagulls. We think of that sort of synth-driven kind of somewhat rock and roll that was very commercially accessible. And it became pretty popular in the 1980s. But particularly in the early days, I always associated New Wave with almost like an offshoot of punk and very experimental. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, the the way that punk music was not necessarily just about playing three chords and making money for screaming into a microphone. Um, It was very sort of political. There were a lot of ideas behind it beyond just the, the music. Like that was the means through which they would express these broader ideas. And so when we think of that new wave and vaudeville is obviously referencing the very, very old sort of traveling performances pretty popular in the very early 20th century. New Wave vaudeville was intended to be really sort of the new wave people playing around. I mean, a lot of the performances sound almost like a 
like a painful sort of talent show minus the talent. Um, you know, some <laughs> some people were doing these these things with like rubber like one of the better ones aside from Klaus Nomi was people getting out rubber guitars and miming to pre-recorded music. And with Klaus Nomi's performance, he was he was giving his all. In fact, before his performances, they would actually have to go up and explain to the audience, no, this guy's actually singing because it was so hard to believe that such a beautiful voice was coming out of him in this chaotic sort of carnival atmosphere. Well, and I think I think it's also worth noting that this beautiful voice was coming out of someone completely unexpected. When he first started, he was dressed relatively normal, kind of in, you know, what you would think crazy, you know, experimental art fashion, plastic, you know, coat. Um, his makeup wasn't quite as heavy quite yet, but he came out and then you just hear this, frankly, beautiful voice come out of this very strange, thin, unassuming man. And it's three minutes of opera that, you know, is not in English. You don't know what he's saying. I'm, well, I mean, unless you spoke the language. And it's just, it's astounding. And I remember the first time I watched the YouTube clip of it, I started crying at my desk, which is, well, not normal. I don't know. I I think these days we're all crying at our desks from time to time. But yeah, in this first performance, he is singing a French opera. Like, it's an aria from a French opera. And yeah, we... We, we wouldn't know what he's saying. In New York, you know, in the East Village, I'm sure some people yeah. spoke French, yeah. but it wasn't the norm. Certainly, I wouldn't have understood it. Longtime listeners will know I cannot speak any sort of French and certainly cannot <laughs> pronounce a single word of it. Um, but he comes out and he's dressed in... Like a plastic raincoat. Yeah, by by the standards of Klaus Nomi, it was relatively normal streetwear. He's wearing very sort of tight, dark clothing and a clear, almost like a clear raincoat or a clear cape of some sort. And this performance, it just builds and builds. It comes out of nowhere and just ramps up until this somewhat chaotic ending with strobe lights and sound effects from the synthesizers. It's like an alien just came out and then fades into the darkness before anyone can even process what they just witnessed. So pretty much after that performance is when things kind of take off. He continues with the vaudeville act, um, but then eventually grows bigger and bigger. He's going on all sorts of New York, uh, you know, public access shows, all sorts of New York news, like, t- you know, nine o'clock news picks him up. Um, in fact, how I actually discovered him is I was watching old video footage of 80s dance clubs, as one does. And it was a department store. And he was actually one of the quote unquote living models um, or mannequins that would like walk around the store, kind of just dancing, um, engaging with customers. Um, of course, the whole store's label is weird, is you know strange. But from there, after that performance, is things kind of start to scra- uh, gradually snowball, and then we eventually get to David Bowie. Yeah, and before we talk about David Bowie, I think it's just worth mentioning 
because you talked about his performance as a living mannequin. Um, that is a whole career for people. There are people today who are performance artists as living statues who make their living by getting dressed up, painting themselves, and standing very, very, very still. It may not be everybody's idea of a good time, but it pays the bills. But he was, for the record, he was not standing still. The, the man was dancing and quite well. Fair enough. I, I just started to think of like uh, Amanda Palmer and the Dresden Dolls oh, yeah. standing very, very still. Yeah. Anyways. Anyways. <laughs> bringing up other obscure cultural acts that we're well versed in. So I guess in what seems to be a running theme for this podcast, Nomi was in a social circle with numerous other talented artists. I really think it's important to be mindful of who you surround yourself with because when you surround yourself with brilliant and talented people, it helps you to up your game. And I think that that's why all of these people seem to gravitate towards each other. As I already said, he was, you know, friends with Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat. I think he dated Basquiat. Uh, possibly. I think there's a dirty rumor. I can neither confirm nor deny I don't know that bit. <laughs> yeah, he probably did. I'm just going to say it. Yeah. Let him come after me. Uh, Either one of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a bad. Oh. That's bad. Oh. So, yeah, so, yeah, he's running yeah. in good circles. And so one of the other artists that he worked with and unfortunately only worked with one time was David Bowie. I guess David Bowie saw him perform and immediately hired him to sing backup for an upcoming Saturday Night Live performance. Uh, the The song that gets probably the most press and the most attention is the performance of The Man Who Sold the World, um, the song that David Bowie covered about 20 years before Nirvana came up with it. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> uh, uh, the The joke there is that thanks. David Bowie absolutely hated the fact that a lot of people thought he covered a Nirvana song. Nirvana was covering him. Uh, but Nomi was Nomi was there with Joey Arias. Um, I think they performed three songs with David Bowie. And the most notable thing about this performance was David Bowie was wearing this sort of shell of a costume. I mean, it was this bubbly suit that, like, he was somewhat triangular. It was a little bit rounded, too. It was the kind of thing that I always would have associated almost with, like, the talking heads, you know? Or like a bow tie that had been cut in half. Yeah. But it... It was a little bit like a circus clown type of thing. And Klaus Nomi was absolutely enamored with this. Like he saw that suit on David Bowie and thought, yes, this is what I want to wear. And so as one does, he found somebody who could produce a plastic triangular suit that would become his signature look. I mean, this mm -hmm. sort of very, very geometric, triangular tuxedo, yeah. really. It, I mean, it was black and white with some form of a bow tie. And he he's actually talked about it um, 
in a in an interview he gave in a, a French interview, uh, it also nods a little bit to Mickey Mouse. He kind of liked playing around with the idea of the Mickey Mouse icon, you know, black and white image mixed with this this elongated, crazy looking triangle, and then these very and then black tights, and then these weird like pointy boots, um, and then uh, you also have to talk about the makeup that he had. We're talking like powder white face and then these very thin uh, little pointy black lips that just gave him like the strangest little lips and then the pointy black hair that were kind of pointy like his triangle suit. It's just you have to you just have to Google it and look at it because it's just fascinating. Yes, and of course, we will have images and a video of one of his performances linked in the show notes as well as on the website. But that signature look of his was definitely eye-catching. I I mean, he almost looked like an alien or a cartoon figure come to life. And as you said, you know, he was a little bit inspired by Mickey Mouse. And we we would often see him in white gloves. Mm -hmm. And compared to the proportions of the plastic suit, his arms looked very, very very thin um, the way that a cartoon figure has a bigger body and just like skinny little arms and big hands and white gloves coming off of that. It was cartoonish, but not in a silly way. It was an absurd look. It was certainly strange, but there was an earnestness about it. And his performances were powerful. And I think that's largely because his voice As I said, he was a classically trained opera singer in a scene that had a lot of, you know, like I said, New Wave was not exactly known for its musicianship. I mean, he was in with punk acts at the time, and he came out with just a stunning range. I have not seen a lot of performers that have his range, and he would hit these high notes seemingly effortlessly it it was truly beautiful but as you watch this performance there's almost this disconnect because a lot of times his voice is coming out in in this tone that that honestly it doesn't it it doesn't sound like a typical man's voice it's unexpected too because you you know you see him come out dressed like this you think okay what crazy garbage is going to come out of his mouth. Is this going to be some weird performance piece I don't understand? And then it's this just breathtaking opera, and then it's over. And then he literally fades into the background, usually with smoke and fog and strobe lights and thunder, and that's it. And so it's just it's um, it's amazing to watch and that this happened and in, a, in a pop culture almost setting, too, that it was accepted. Um so that that's kind of cool. I mean, to to be fair, I would consider opera to be a weird performance piece that I don't understand. And I think when he came out in those costumes looking like a cartoon um, made manifest as a human being, the expectation was that his performance will be absurd or silly. And it was very classical and studied and beautiful. And so I think now would be probably a good time to delve a little bit deeper and talk about that performance. 
And so I know you have different ones that are your favorites, but I am going to go with the classic Know Me song for us to focus on. Play on words. Because well, it, it's the, it's, it's the um, his name's Klaus Know Me, and it's called the Know Me song. Okay, so as we watch his video for Know Me song, what's jumping out at you? What do you notice? What stands out? What do you think of it? Well, first of all, you know, just like most videos back then, it, it's low budget, but all of his videos were low budget, to be honest. The second thing that jumps out at me is um, everything around it, around him, the room, the lighting, the graphics look fake, look very um, saturated, just like him. He He's in this, you know, plastic, shiny tuxedo triangle shoot, suit, and he's, you know, got the, the gloves on and the goofy boots, and he... But when he opens his mouth, this very real, powerful, unexpected voice comes out. And the statement of the song, you know, he keeps asking over and over, do they know me? Know me? You know, it, it once again, play on words, delightful. Um, but it's kind of like his introduction. Um, although I don't, I don't think this was the first song. Yeah, and just like as I break down the video, one of the things that really strikes me is how he would make the visual and the audio sort of connect to each other. In in the opening of the song, he's walking into an empty room, and honestly, it feels like a green screen sort of synthetic room. And there's this falseness to it. There's this hollowness to the space created in the video and the backdrop and everything. And the music feels a little bit sparse in that opening. And then as the music kicks in and ramps up, you know, that's where he becomes a little bit more central. He gets a little bit bigger within the frame. The background becomes more colorized because he starts off in that white void of a room and then we get that that uh, saturated red with his stark silhouette in front of it and it does feel a little bit like he is asserting himself and you know becoming louder and more vivid and stronger and bolder in both the musical performance and, you know, the showing of himself in there, which I I find kind of interesting. You know, to me, it feels like it is a performance piece declaring who he is. And yes, mm-hmm. it's not his first single. It's not his first song. Yeah, but yeah. it is it is a statement of, I feel like, sort of self-acceptance and embracing who he is loud and proud in front of everybody, no matter how how unusual his appearance might be yeah. compared to what others were doing, you know, he owned it. He and embraced his it. No, his unusual his unusual voice too. Yeah, his voice is unusual. It is, like I said, it is extremely high. But I think one of the things that really strikes me about his voice is it's very high while still being strong because a lot of people, when they go into that falsetto, the voice becomes softer. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and that's something that I found really striking about his musical style and his performance. Of course, I I have to say though, it, it is funny to see, like, as you said, it's, 
very low budget yeah. 80s. Um, I remember when I was like 10 years old, maybe younger, I took some classes on TV production at like the local local cable <laughs> access network. And this feels like the kinds of wipes and transitions that yeah. I was taught to do uh, in like, you know, <laughs> in their beginner course for elementary kids. <laughs> It's a lot of things like zooming in and out oh, and the, yeah. The, yeah. the fade yeah. that sort of, you know, we're Ooh. going to have the picture pull oh, yeah. up yeah, there, into yeah. the foreground. And he's just playing with silhouettes yeah. and he's playing with the positive and negative space and the colors and the lighting. I believe this was 1982. So it was like just the infancy of music videos. Yeah. And that pixelated dissolve at the end. It's beautiful. Well, you know, um, he's not everyone's cup of tea. Um, I know it's an acquired taste, but I highly recommend you do give him a listen just because it is so intriguing. I like Klaus Nomi because he was strange and unusual and he owned it. And I think more than ever right now, that's important to have people like that where they have talent and maybe it's not the kind of talent we're all used to, but it's talent and it's beautiful. And he ran with it. And by all accounts, he was um, a very kind, uh, soft-spoken man. So when you see these performances and you see the talent that comes out of him and then you know how he really was offstage, quote unquote, it's, it's just, um, it's endearing. And kudos to Kyle for putting up with uh, my Klaus Nomi uh, giddiness over the years because he's, he's tolerated that quite well. I think what's interesting to me about Klaus Nomi and in some ways sad and in some ways beautiful and inspiring is, as you said, he embraced the unusual aspects of who he was. And I have... I've read so many accounts of how many influential artists later on, extremely popular artists, counted him as an influence and a trailblazer because he did own his strangeness. He he did lean into just who he was, and he was unashamed of that. You know, he... He had these unusual ideas for how he would present himself on stage and how he would perform and what kinds of songs he would perform. He did covers of pop songs and he did operas. He just did what he liked. And I think that kind of self-acceptance is beautiful and inspiring and it is something we need more of. I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three-point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the Louvre? British for the bathroom. Yeah, there's the a Louvre joke in there somewhere. Oh, that's terrible. All three, because all three places deserve to hear it. How you like that? I I think that is an effective dodge. Um, In the Louvre, duh. In the Louvre. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm going to put this one in the lab. And 
it's not that I feel like it doesn't belong in the Louvre because I think his performances were beautiful. And as somebody who is not overly fond of performance art in general, mm-hmm. no. I I have to say I I do actually think his is interesting and and fun and has a number of different ways it can be understood and appreciated. And I think that's the mark of a good performance piece. What I will say, though, and the reason that I ultimately land on the lab is I feel like a lot of people do not necessarily enjoy his performances. You know, he he is an acquired taste, but I think he is worth seeing and hearing and learning about because he is such a strong example of the power that comes from somebody embracing who they are for all of their quirks and all of those things that make them unique and all of the things that some people might say make them weird or freakish or however it might be put down by others, those quirks are what give a person character. And if you learn to embrace that, those people who seem like the odd ones out suddenly won't seem so odd. Because really, at our core, we all have something to offer. It's just a matter of helping to see it in ourselves and then allowing others to see it. And I think one of the things about Klaus Nomi that I always take away from that is no matter what the packaging, no matter how someone might look on the outside, there's something beautiful they have to offer if we're just willing to take the time to look. And I think that's that's what he gave us. He gave us delight and surprise um, that resonated with a lot of people and transformed a lot of people's ideas about art and performance. So I guess I want to say thank you very much for taking the time to to join me on this episode. And thank you very much for broadening my horizons in the art world and showing me performers that I never knew existed. Yeah, yeah. Do what I can. (laughs) Thank you for having me come on down to the basement and having me on the show. Thank you. It's it's been fun. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted? If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and on the website whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done. <laughs>